our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 12. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. We arrive here at one of the main turning points in the book of Genesis. Up till this point, chapters 1 through 11 have been speaking in terms of all of the world, all of the nations, all of creation. There's been a, a, a cosmic, a global scope to those chapters. With chapter 12 now, there becomes the particular focus on Abram and following from Abram the story of Israel. As I said last week on chapter 10 and 11, that turning point or the hinge between the two is very much the main point to these chapters. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go." And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Galatians 
3, verses 1 through 9. So as many of you know, Abram's name will later be turned to Abraham, and Sarai's name will later be changed to Sarah. I make no promise to you that I'm going to keep straight when I'm supposed to say which one. So I want to make sure you know whichever one, we're ta- whichever one I happen to say, we're talking about the same person. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word, we praise you. We praise you by praising the beauty of your word. We love the scriptures. We love the unity of your word, the beauty and consistency of the way it all fits together around our Lord Jesus Christ, all for the glory of your name by your spirit. This is a joy, it is a gladness we experience every time we hear your word publicly read. And as we praise you for the beauty of your word, we ask you then by the presence of your Holy Spirit to make that word effective in our midst. We need the strengthening of our faith. We need to be turned away from temptations toward paths of destruction and wandering from you. We need the comfort of your promises. And in the midst of all of this then, we say most of all that we need your word. And we need your word to direct us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do that for us through the preaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before our scripture reading from Genesis 12, we are at a moment of transition in the book of Genesis. Up till now, the story of the creation, the fall into sin, Cain and Abel demonstrating the reality of that sin, the Tower of Babel, the flood, all of these things have been dealing with humanity as a whole. And at this moment in our text, the story transitions. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram. And from this point on, you're going to feel the difference. Now, the Old Testament's going to start to feel the way we think of it as feeling. 
all of the stories, the narratives, the drama of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob leading up to the story of Israel. And that means we have to ask some new questions about how we ought to read God's Word. We have before us a story, an event. Now, when I say the word story, I've had um, people actually ask me or actually um, criticize me about this in the past, that when I say the word story, I'm making it sound like it's not real history. All right, so let's be clear. These are all real historical events. And history itself is a story, the drama of what God is doing in the world. So the story, the drama, is first of all the real thing that happened. And then we have before us God's interpretation, His explanation of that real thing that happened. I want to keep using the word story because I think that's the part we can be tempted to neglect. More on that next week. We have before us, though, stories. And that means we then need to be asking, how does a story speak to us? How is a historical event something God is doing speaking to us? And there is an option, a way of doing this that I want to warn you against over and over and over through our time in Genesis. So several weeks from now when you say, Pastor, it feels like you've said this about 23 times now, I'll say, that's right. I told you ahead of time we would. Here's the danger. We just had the story of Abram being afraid that because Sarai is so beautiful that the Egyptians are going to kill him and take her. And so he tells Sarai to lie and say that she is his sister. The idea there being that Abram is probably hoping that then they'll negotiate with him and it'll buy him time to protect her and eventually get out of Egypt. Well, that doesn't work well because the news gets to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh simply takes her. There are plagues upon Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh figures out what is going on and sends Abram and Sarai back out. What do we do with this? Well, so many analyses begin with, what did Abram do? And is it a good example or a bad example? What did Abram do and should we do that or not? Many of us, especially those who grew up as Christians, have been formed by some dangerous ways of reading the Old Testament in this way, where every character is a moral lesson, a good example or a bad example. Now, there is wisdom and there is warnings in the examples in the Old Testament, but the problem, as many of you have heard me say many times, is that if we do that, it is not gospel. I could say what Abram did was bad, don't do that. Or I could say what Abram did was shrewd and wise. You should be shrewd and wise. We can debate which it is, but neither of those is gospel. And what we need this morning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the fun things I hope you'll enjoy as we go through these stories in Genesis is not just the particular stories, but my hope, my prayer, is that we will enjoy growing together in that question of how to read the stories of the Bible in the first place. So not just the individual examples, though those are going to be enjoyable as well, but I hope you will enjoy that sense of growing in how all of Scripture, even the really weird stories like Genesis 14 and 15 of the wars between all of these kings, all of Scripture proclaims to us good news. And part of the fun, the enjoyment, the delight of God's Word is growing and seeing that together. So, that is our goal this morning from Genesis chapter 12, as it will be through all of our series. We're going to see this in three steps. First, God's promises. Second, Abram's faith. And then third, 
God's faithfulness. God's promises, verses 1 through 3. Abram's faith, verses 4 through 9. God's faithfulness, verses 10 through 20. So we begin this morning with God's promises. And maybe right there is a way you could summarize the whole point for how we should read the Old Testament. Always begin with what God is saying. Always begin with what God is doing. We begin with God's promises. Verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The entire story of Abram's life, the entire story of the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, the entire story of Israel flowing from Jacob and his sons, the entire story of the Bible of the whole world begins with promises. God's speaking, God's promising. But what does he promise Abram in particular? Now he calls Abram to do something in response to those promises, to go to the land, and we're going to talk about that. But what does he promise him in particular? He's going to give him land. He's going to give Abram's family, and he's calling Abram to go sojourn there, to travel there in the confidence that God will give him that land. The second promise, God will give him descendants. Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. And in chapter 15 and 17, that part of the promise will become more clear when God will use the example of the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore saying, your descendants will be as uncountable as those things. God promises Abram that he will be a great nation. The third promise, and there's actually there's a lot of ways you can divide this up. You could say there's a, a, really a third promise that I will make your name great. But the third one, to, uh, if we're going to do three to sum up all of them, would be this promise of blessing. And notice the, the interplay of all of this language of blessing. God says, I will bless you and make your name great. So Abram's reputation, the greatness of his name is part of that blessing. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And here is one of the key moments that drives the whole rest of the story. God says that his blessing of Abraham will be so that he will be a blessing to others. And the text goes on to sort of unfold that, to describe how that's going to go. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then this summary statement, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We should hear this in very broad, big, epic, cosmic terms. God will bless Abram through him the whole world. The problem at that moment is that lots of us, including myself, are very tempted by a very thin sense of what bless means. We use the word blessing a lot. We use the word blessing regarding very small everyday things. And there is nothing wrong with that. 
We ought to observe, to acknowledge, to give thanks for in very small, everyday things the reality of God's blessing. And we ought to be free with acknowledging that. To say in a given joyful, glad thing that we are experiencing that God has blessed us, that we feel blessed, we're glad we've been blessed, we praise God that we have been blessed. The problem with so many words like that is the more they get said, though, the, the, the thinner they feel. And we lose a sense of the richness of just what the word means. Blessing, here in Genesis 12, has in view the undoing of cursing. Blessing, here in Genesis 12, has in view the undoing of the cursing that happened in Genesis chapter 3 because of Adam and Eve's sin. The word blessing here means the undoing of all that is broken in the world. It means God setting right his creation that is twisted and distorted and messed up. It is God saying to Abram, I am going to give you life as it is made to be. The great Hebrew word for that would be shalom. Peace, not simply as the absence of conflict, but peace as wholeness, as created life as God created it to be. We think of the language of the Aaronic benediction, of God's face being toward you, his countenance, that, the, that this blessing is not just about earthly prosperity, though it is very much includes that, but it is about God's benevolence, God's kindness, God's favor. So God says, I'm going to do that for you, Abram, but what's the goal of doing it for Abram? It is for the whole world. God promises land, descendants, and that through Abram, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Not only does God pronounce those promises, but those promises are acted out, as it were, in this story. Abram then journeys through, we're told all of these place names as he goes through the land of Canaan. And in all of those, both the path of Abram and the specific places named, there are uh, echoes, uh, the, the, the word I want to start using more that we don't use normally, but I've come to love it over the last couple of weeks, some other things I've been reading, the word adumbrations. So uh, foreshadowing, alluding to what would happen in the future, echoes from the future. So something God is going to do in the future that is echoing in this moment, being expressed by way of illusion, by way of the shape of the story, so that the paths Abram take are paths that later Israelites will follow. The places where things happen, the places referred to in this account, the Oak of, of Morah, for example, all of these echo, allude to things God would later do. Or the whole account of Abram and Sarai in Egypt. A famine drives them to Egypt. Sarai is threatened by Egypt while there. God sends plagues upon Pharaoh's house. He afflicts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh then sends them out of Egypt. All of this is an echo of what God would later do in the Exodus. When Israel would be in Egypt because of a famine, remember that's why, Joseph, or that's why uh, Jacob's family goes to Israel, Egypt when Joseph is there. And God would bring them out by sending plagues. That there is a pattern to what God is doing, and that pattern is also a promise. And most of all, there is a pattern of choosing one individual through whom the rest of the world would be rescued. 
a focusing down to one individual for the sake of the world, which is itself an echo from the future of what God would do in Christ. That our Lord Jesus Christ would be the son of Abraham, who is the result of all of that focusing in on Abraham, was about focusing on Christ, and it is through Christ, by his death and resurrection, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It is that that was being promised, not just in the words, but in the actions, the patterns of what God is doing in this text. All of those promises then are promises for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the church. And here is where we have to make the point that I told you last week we would make even more this week. There is so much confusion in the Christian church about what these promises to Abram refer to. There are many Christians for, for generations now who have been convinced that the promise to Abram about the land is still about a particular ethnic people having a particular plot of land. And all of this drives so much then of how Christians read the Old Testament and hear what God is saying to them. And so when we hear God promise to Abram land, descendants, and being a blessing to the nations, we need to hear it the way the scriptures tell us to hear it. And how did the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 tell us to hear this promise? Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Apostle Paul says that those words, through you shall the nations be blessed, was God preaching the gospel beforehand. And that the scriptures had in view all the way from the beginning of the story, the scriptures had in view that the goal of all of it was the Gentiles being saved by faith. That the goal of all of it was the nations being blessed by faith in the God of Abraham. And there are two statements here that are absolutely crystal clear as to why we should reject this idea that these promises are still about a certain ethnic people still having a certain plot of land. Two things. First, the gospel always foresaw the inclusions of Gentiles by faith and that this just was the gospel. Second, verse 7, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Could Paul be more clear? Like, this is not a confusing point. This is not a difficult point. This is not a challenging point. Paul says very clearly, who are the sons of Abraham? It is those who are of faith. Those who put their faith in Israel's Messiah are Israel. Those who put their faith in Israel's Messiah are the Israel of God, the covenant people of God. Israel has not been replaced. Israel has not been superseded. This is what Israel has always been. Those who have lived by faith in the God of Israel. It was always the case that Gentiles could be included and were equally Israel, indeed part of the line of Christ. This has always been the way it has worked. And so Paul proclaims with absolute clarity, That that is what God had in mind from the very beginning. So, let us be clear. What do these promises have in view? 
What is the land about? The promise of land. Listen to the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Heir of what? The world. And so Paul tells us that the promise of the land was actually a promise of the day when God would be recovering the whole world. The whole creation is his. That the land of Canaan was like a beachhead, the beginning of God's plan to restore the whole creation to him. And so that promise of the world, of the land, is ultimately a promise of new creation. That the land of Canaan was a temporary promise of what was eternal, what God was always going to do, and that was to remake the whole world. Because the covenant God of Israel, chapter 12, is the creator God of the whole world chapter 1 through 11. And his goal through Abram, chapter 12, through you all the nations of the world to be blessed, was the recovery, the salvation of all the nations described in chapter 11. So, the promise of land is about the new creation. The promise of descendants is about all of us being gathered as those of faith who are therefore the sons of Abraham. And the promise of being a blessing to the nations is about the mission of the church. That Jesus comes as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world, fulfilling what God said to Abram. So that when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, he is being the true son of Abraham. Indeed, Matthew's gospel begins by saying Jesus is a son of Abraham. So that then Christ says to his church, you are the light of the world. And so your very presence in the world as the church is the continued fulfillment of these words. That we are here as the sons of Abraham, by faith in Israel's Messiah, therefore being a blessing to the nations as light to the world. All of that is God's promises. Second point shorter. God's promises, which... I hope we're being clear, that is what's driving everything. It is where the account begins. It's what drives, it's what empowers, it's what energizes what is happening. God's promises. God's promises must be received by faith. And the New Testament also tells us very clearly, in fact, it's part of the point Paul is making in both of those passages, Galatians 3 and Romans 4, that Abraham's faith is an example for us. Now, not an example in the crass sense of, you know, Abraham did really good things, now you go work hard to be like Abraham. But the point being, just as all that God said was received only by faith, not by doing or accomplishing or earning, but as a gift as God announces it, so too for the nations, that the nations, the Gentiles, all those who look to the Lord in faith, in Christ, and by the Spirit, therefore receive all that God has promised by faith. Genesis 15 will say this even more clearly, that Abraham believed God, and that is what was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul, of course, later quotes those very words to speak of that's how it works for us. Brothers and sisters, let us simply enjoy together, delight in, be comforted by that always being how God has worked. He has never 
related to his people by earning or deserving. He has never related to his people in terms of you have to be good enough to deserve what he's going to say. First, he announces the promises, and Abram's faith is in response. God does not come and say, let me see how well you do, how well you pull this off, and then I'll decide if this promise is for you or not. He simply comes and announces the promise. And the faith of Abram is in response to that. God has not changed. You relate to your creator. You relate to your redeemer in the very same way. He speaks to you promises, and he calls you to receive and rest in those promises by faith. This pattern that we see right here in Genesis 12, that God comes and simply announces these things to Abram, and he's calling Abram to believe them, is how we ought to then read the whole story of Israel. It's how we then ought to read the whole story of God's dealing with Israel in the exile and the promises of return from exile. It's how we ought to hear all that our Lord Jesus Christ says, that God doesn't change. He gives his promises. He inaugurates the covenant relationship. He brings you into relationship with him, and he calls you to receive those promises only by faith. When we do that, what does that faith do? Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. The New Testament also speaks of Abram's actions being a pattern that also shapes the life of the covenant for us. But here is how the covenant works. God proclaims his promises. We receive those only by faith. When we put our faith in God's promises, that translates into action. Faith transforms living. Faith receives, one of the promises that is being received is the promise of new life, of restored life. Life as God made it to be, that's what blessing is. Blessing is not other than, but includes transformed living. And so when you receive that promise by faith, it affects how you live. Abram does this sacrificially. He leaves his father's house, a place of security, a place of belonging. You know your father's house, like he's a kid living in his parents' house. Father's house means it would basically be something like, almost like a nation, right? A large number of people, wealth, prosperity, security, military power. All of these things would have been associated by where he was. Safety, security, prosperity, everything he knew. And he's called to leave and to go into a land where enemies live, where it's now dangerous, where he's separated from all of that security, and to do so simply because God said so. When Abram does this, there is a reason that Hebrews 11 then sets forth Abram as a hero of faith, because he shows how that faith transforms how we live. And he does it, again, sacrificially. I love the statement in verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And with those place names, there's echoes of what would be in the future of God giving that land to Israel. And then the verse says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The very model of how faith works. God says, I'm going to give you the land. Abraham looks around and says, nope. That's what he sees. But what does he act in terms of what God has said? And that faith in what God has said then results in living in confidence 
in what God has said. The response of faith, faith transforms living, and faith gives hope. You know, perhaps one of the most challenging things about the New Testament telling us that Abram's faith continues to reveal to us how the covenant works is that the book of Hebrews tells us Abram died. He died before seeing all of this fulfilled. Now, each one of these promises, he saw the beginning of the fulfillment. So he saw things that encouraged and strengthened him, but he did not see the ultimate fulfillment. In fact, this became a pattern in the way of God's people, that they would die before having seen all that God had promised. The book of Hebrews speaks of this too, speaking to us as the church. Hebrews 11, verse 10. Speaking of Abram, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram knew that what God promised him, like he could see the specific thing being promised, but that there was more behind it, that it flowed out into something bigger. Indeed, the language of blessing meant that would be the case. The undoing of the curse couldn't just mean a plot of land. It had to mean something more. It meant, in, in response to what happened in Genesis 3, it meant ultimately the remaking of God's broken world. And Hebrews 11 says that they knew that then. Continuing on, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Whoa, now hold on. Let, let that challenge you. Don't, don't be hearing what Abram is doing simplistically. You know? He believed God, did the right thing, and he got everything God said. Well, he did eventually, but not in the way we often think. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Greeting them from afar. So what, what God promised Abram, it's out there. He knows. He trusts God. He trusts, what, he trusts the goodness of the Creator and the Creator's purpose to set right what is broken by our sin, but knowing, nevertheless, these strangers and exiles on the earth, that there's a sense of not belonging because of the way the world is. Verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God was promising the heavenly country, not of, not of not rejecting the earth, but of heaven and earth reunited of the curse undone, of the picture and revelation of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the earth. It is that city that Abram was living toward. And perhaps the most compelling thing about the way the apostle speaks in Hebrews 11 is that they knew that then. 
They would tell Christians today, it was never about the land. They would tell Christians today, you're missing the point. It is about the new creation. It is what God is doing for all the nations of the world. And Abram, in whatever incomplete way, but nevertheless real, knew that was the case. My favorite example of this. Uh, Psalm 39. So Psalm 39, a psalm of David. Oh, you say, okay, come on. If there was ever a time when God's people were settled in the land, when they knew the land was the thing, God promised the land, we have the land, we're settled in the land, this is our home. Psalm 39, verse 10, David says, sorry, verse 12. David says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. David knew that even at that time of most possessing home, it wasn't home. He was a sojourner, a guest. And he says that in response to the reality of tears. Hold not your peace at my tears. David knew Abraham knew, and their voice from way back then says to us, as the nations now included as a result of that blessing, remember that is what you are living toward. That heavenly country, that God's promise of setting the world right, of blessing, of shalom, of life, of life as it is made to be. That indeed you have expressions of it, experiences of it in the here and now, but all of those are simply helps that God gives to get you to the end of that story. All of us have something right now where the question of faith in that promise is the issue. All of us do. In times of temptation, it's the issue. Do you have to grab after maximizing the most of whatever that earthly pleasure is right now? Or is it simply a partial and incomplete pointer to a far greater glory? In times of suffering. That's what David is referring to. Hold not your peace at my tears. Give ear to my cry. And what does David need to remember? I am a sojourner with you. A guest like my father's. And in suffering, there's more that God has set before you. In seasons of life, that seems small, disappointing, insignificant, not what you hoped it would be, not satisfying the way you hoped it would. The ups and downs of seasons of life in a way that, you know, when I summarize it that way, it sounds like a smaller thing, but sometimes it's terrifying. What is needed then? Confidence in the very same promises. That God has promised land, the new creation, descendants, that you are his adopted child, that he has promised blessing to the nations, the mission of the church, and he calls you to live by faith in that promise. Finally, and in conclusion, God's faithfulness. All right, we can do this quickly. So you've got this story. We've summed it up a couple times of Abram and Sarai in Egypt. And Abram lies-ish. Remember, Sarai is his half-sister, so I don't know. He lies-ish. To protect her, to protect himself, it's just not clear. 
Is he being shrewd in a good way? You know, he has this idea that then, you know, the Egypt's going to have to negotiate with him and he can protect her while they're there for the famine and then they get out and everything will be fine. And then, you know, it's just the, the random thing that Pharaoh hears about it. Or is he sinfully, faithlessly, instead of trusting God and simply telling the truth and telling God, crying out to God to protect him, is he sinfully, rebelliously, faithlessly lying? I don't know. When I read the debates, the back and forth, I find very, very persuasive the ones that want to defend Abram, but almost no one does. So, I don't know. But there's often something to learn at that point. The scripture does not assess what Abram does. It doesn't say. It doesn't really ever condemn him. It doesn't say. So even if what he did was wrong, it seems to not be the point. What is the point? By the end of the story, what has God done? Oh, well, there you go. There's the key, right? What were we asking before? What did Abram do? Was it good or bad? What should we ask? What did God do? By the end of the story, what has God done? What was the danger? Was the danger just the suffering of Sarai, the suffering of Abram, however you want to tell the story, however you want to interpret it? The danger was that the line of promise was being threatened. Sarai was the one through whom God said he was going to bless all the nations of the earth. God just said, my plan is that through this family, all the world will be blessed. And now what is happening? That line is threatened. That family is being threatened in Egypt. And by the end of the story, God has acted to protect that line of promise. That God, through cursing Pharaoh's house, that God, through causing Pharaoh to act in this way, sending them out, that what God has done is shown that nothing, not even the most powerful nation in the world at the time, the most prosperous nation of Egypt, nothing could stop what God promised he would do. And the force, the impact, the heart of the story basically ignores whether Abram was right or wrong and says, look what God did. He kept his promises, and he tells you right there at the beginning, nothing can stop what he has promised he will do. Congregation of Christ, that is the message of Genesis 12 for you and your faith this morning. You are trusting in all of the same promises. Has that been clear? You are trusting in all of the same promises. And so that announcement of the relentlessness, the unstoppableness of God's faithfulness is for you as you trust in all of those same promises. This is the payoff, by the way. We, look, I know we don't have time for all the details. This is the payoff of all of those echoes, the adumbrations, the illusions, these patterns. God does things in the same way over and over. That's not just a fun way it foreshadows on the timeline. That is because God doesn't change. And that continuity in God's actions points up to who God is. That what God does down here in the world reveals something true about who he is unchangingly and eternally. So, hear the message of God's faithfulness to his promises for you. The promise of land, of the new creation, heaven and earth reunited. That promise is unstoppable. The promise of descendants that you only by faith are a daughter, a son of Abraham. That promise is unstoppable. The promise of blessing to the nations, that the church's mission as light will be successful 
is what God has been doing from the beginning, however it may appear to our eyes. That promise is unstoppable. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the beauty of your promises, for the unity of Scripture, and we pray that you would strengthen our faith in them, that we might live faithfully as your covenant people. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.